Welcome to the Inclusive Mental Health Podcast, Crossroads in Therapy by Belong. In this podcast, we will put therapy under a magnifying glass and enkindle the spirit of intersectional mental health. In each episode, we talk to experts with adequate professional and personal experiences in tackling mental health challenges faced by marginalized communities. The title for today's episode is A Refuge for Refugees. Trauma experienced by refugees is not limited to their experiences prior to their flight. In addition, hostile conditions in the refugee settlements can impose stress and hardship. While India is home to 2.44 lakh refugees and asylum seekers, hardly any initiatives cater to the mental health needs of refugees. In this episode, we bring on board Dr. Kaz De Jong, who is a clinical and health psychologist and head of staff health department for Doctors Without Borders based in Amsterdam. Dr. Kaz provides psychosocial support to MSF staff responding to coronavirus pandemic and other emergencies. He's also working independently in his home country Netherlands to support healthcare workers on the front line of COVID-19 response there. Stay tuned as we talk to Dr. Kaz about the various challenges faced by displaced persons within mental health sector of the host countries. We also deliberate on the possibility of designing or redesigning mental health care work catering to the displaced communities. Hi Dr. Kaz, welcome to today's episode. Thank you for inviting me and a good afternoon. Great. To begin with Dr. Kaz, you have done exhaustive research on the need for mental health services in areas of mass violence. How have your personal experiences shaped your work? My personal experiences. Oh, that's that's a very uh, good question to start with because I think most people in the profession they take or they're sooner or later getting into have a personal background. I have been involved in work with people who are suffering from traumatic experiences, I should say, who have survived potentially traumatic experiences. I was basically quite young, experiencing quite some few things myself, big things, not not in the personal. I've been growing up in a family that has been extremely harmonious. But in the external world, I have experienced quite some violence. And that also got me interested in this field. And yes, so that's the reason why I basically got into this. Thank you for sharing with us. You have worked with Doctors Without Borders for nearly two decades now. What have your findings been in relation to the mental health treatment gap in regions occupied by refugees? To start with, I started in, in indeed 94, and people always think about wars, Middle East, Africa, sometimes a bit in Asia, but I started to work in a European war. Uh, it was the Bosnian-Balkan war. And so I've been shaped there, basically. And what struck me in those days was there was hardly any knowledge about mental health and mental health interventions in areas of mass violence. So people did not know how to do it. People did not know whether it was anyway a problem, what priority it had, because that war causes mental health problems was a no-brainer, but it's really relevant for populations during conflict already. And then, of course, if you do interventions, are they effective? Uh, There was hardly any knowledge. And if I look nowadays, there is quite some knowledge, quite a lot of knowledge about how to assess. There are lessons learned, many lessons learned also, some mistakes I've made myself also. And we know much more about the effects. We have learned much more about community interventions 
So with regard to that, the mental health gap has not widened, but decreased. More and more countries have uh, mental health services. The number of psychologists in previously resource uh, poor areas, in the sense of psychology at least, have now not abundant mental health system, but at least there is attention for it and there are services for it. I think in general, what I see around the world is that especially the psychiatric care in institutions still needs a lot of attention. And that's also the area where I see a lot of things moving extremely slowly. So that's basically the the summary of more than two decades mental health work in the world. Yeah, and I'm sure that we are going to dive into those years of learning as well as we move forward. Dr. Kars, India is home to 2.44 lakh refugees and asylum seekers. Of these, a lot many refugees are from Sri Lanka and Tibet. And do you think that the host countries are able to provide refugees and asylum seekers holistic and adequate support? It's yes and no. It depends on which country. I think first you need to look at whether governments are able to provide their own people with uh, sufficient care, holistic care and basic means to live. That is an important criteria. Because if you start to judge countries, governments, about the treatment for either their displaced or refugees, then the environment always must be taken into consideration. And if the environment is of that of low resource, then uh, different criteria should be applied. Very brief, in the West, in, like in Europe, you can have completely different measures about the treatment of refugees and displaced than you can have in low-resource countries like Bangladesh, to mention one, and maybe also in India. If you want to specifically focus on India, indeed Sri Lanka from Tibet, but also internally displaced people who are currently, for instance, unable to live in the areas that they want in Kashmir, India part of Kashmir I talked about. So whether the governments are able to provide sufficient, on, on what country should we focus? Because the scope would be too broad, I think. That is true. Given your experience of working in various regions around the world, what is your opinion about South Asian countries and the way they have tackled the refugee crisis? Yeah, if I look at the huge refugee crisis in Bangladesh with the Rohingya population that has been violently pushed out of Myanmar by the army of Myanmar, People living there in extremely difficult circumstances, a million a million refugees uh, on a small spot of land, services mostly catered by international NGOs. At the same time, if you see that the Bangladesh government is able to have this on their territory in a country that is in certain areas, can be considered as a low resource area, then there are two things, two thoughts. The first thought is a huge admiration for this government and for allowing these people to stay in the country. At the same time, not enough is happening. People should be fused and integrated in the regular population. However, I'm talking from Amsterdam and in Europe. If I look at the Dutch government, for instance, my own government, who are maybe allowing each year now, let's say, 20, 30, or even make it 50,000 and not more, 
then I think the Bangladesh government as an example is doing an awful lot. Is it doing enough for integrating? No. But the fact that they allow the refugee population to stay there is already remarkable. So I think we should judge governments on what they're doing. If you want to compare to what my government is doing, potentially the integration of displaced or of refugee population is better organized, although there are a lot of criticisms on that also. But it's better organized if you compare it to Bangladesh. If you look at the numbers, then my government, a high-resource country, I think it's four or fifth richest country of the world, and you compare it to a country like Bangladesh, then I think the admiration is for me for the Bangladesh and Southeast Asia, who have much higher numbers of refugees and displaced and compared to, to the lower resources. So I see this, your question, mainly as a criticism to towards our own government, who is in my opinion, not doing uh, a lot on this worldwide problem. Mm-hmm. Talking about the mental health workers, according to you, what are some of the challenges faced by mental health workers in their work with various displaced and refugee groups in India or in South Asia? Yeah, I think in general, one of the biggest problems is what we as clinicians have is that we think we very often know what the people need. And of course, we have learned for this and we have assessed needs, etc. However, what I see very often forgotten is that displaced and the refugees themselves have a say in what kind of services they can get and how it should be organized. That is usually not happening or not enough happening. So with regard to that's in general humanitarian aid, this is a problem. And in mental health, it's also the same problem. So for mental health, we see sometimes in displaced or refugee crisis, mental health professionals coming in, knowing about PTSD, trauma, depression and anxiety and sort of focusing their attention on that without seeing the direct needs of the population and especially what they see as priority. So I think that's a pitfall very often seen by by mental health professionals and they do it with a good intention because there is depression, there is anxiety and there is PTSD. What is forgotten is that very often people are in situations of transition in which signs and symptoms of these disorders are a part of a transition. If you want to, for those circumstances, normal symptoms for abnormal situations. And if the situation stabilizes, you see a lot of this distress being diminished. So the risk of mental health professionals is is that they start to treat this distress as pathology and not seeing it as an adaptation process. And you treat distress entirely different from pathology. And that's where the the problem starts. My experience is that treating distress with community-based interventions and indeed also more specialized services for those who indeed develop pathology is a combination that is quite rare. Uh, More and more nowadays it happens, by the way. So in the beginning, we either had uh, no mental health or we had only psychosocial community-based services, social support services, or we had the heart disorder-oriented therapeutic services. And nowadays we have more combinations and that's exactly the the intervention model that, that I've been promoting as much as possible. 
because uh, usefulness of mental health interventions in areas of mass violence is that you are addressing among those who were before this incident having a quite normal life without too many mental health problems, but due to the circumstances experiencing distress and all its symptoms of distress, and uh, confuse that with uh, pathology and pathological treatment. And the interventions for that are different. It's much more therapeutical, sometimes even medication for people suffering from pathologies. So combine the services, but do not focus only on psychosocial or only on the severe mental health, but take the, com- uh, the combination of it. Yeah, that is very true. And indeed, mental health workers who are directly in contact with displaced communities need to have a specific sort of training or perhaps need to capacitate themselves to understand these issues and work yeah. accordingly. Yeah. What, what we did was to continue on, on what you say, and indeed it's training, but it's also an attitude. And as therapists, as clinicians, we very often have the attitude that I know because I studied for this. And this is also how we started in the 90s, the mental health programs. We had something like, yeah, we have studied for this, we know this, and this is the way to do it. And at least in the organization I work at Médecins Sans Frontières, we have dramatically changed it. And our observation, uh, our attitudes nowadays have something the beneficiary knows best what they need. And of course, there are, there are limitations to that. It is not always that the beneficiary knows the best, but in principle, yes. And that creates an attitude in which you start to say, hey, what do you need? What is for you a priority? And what is for you the best way to intervene? on this and listening to that combining it with your own knowledge and practice and clinical experiences that combination is very useful and that's how we trained our own counselors psychologists and so it's a fusion of what works locally what is helpful locally what is useful locally what are the needs locally what are the expectations for treatment locally with what is already done in the community and what can we add to that? And that's the order. And that attitude you can train. However, it's also an attitude you must have. It means professional specialists should have a certain level of modesty with regard to that. And that's not always a given, I can say. Hmm. Dr. Kars, also refugees as well as asylum seekers get affected perhaps by the social legislations that are passed by the host country. How do you think that affects their mental well-being? Yeah, and this is basically what I see everywhere in the world, including also in Europe. What I think is one of the most harmful ways is the lack of opportunities displaced and, and refugees are getting. And I do understand why host governments are doing this, but it's still extremely short-sighted. I'm referring to a limitation. It's not a social, it's a socio-economic limitation. And very often in my country, refugees are not allowed to work during the asylum-seeking procedure, which I think is putting capable, active people, incapable of acting, incapable of engaging in their environment, incapable or not allowed to, to show and practice their skills. Basically, they are told to sit on their hands, to stop thinking and to wait. Now, every healthy human being sooner or later develops mental health problems when they are confronted with that for too long time. And this has also been proven 
in, I don't know exactly which year, but they did a research in the centers for reception in the U.S., specifically in New York, where refugees entered from abroad and they were during their asylum-seeking procedure monitored on mental health. And a majority developed serious mental health problems during their asylum-seeking procedure, which was in a certain center. So this clearly proves, and there is more since that, there has been more research, that asylum-seeking procedures are by itself an ill-making mechanism. And I understand people need to go through certain procedures. I fully understand that because you also have to take care of your own safety and security as government. It's your responsibility. My plea is make them active. Let them take care of their own environment. And if it's not paid work, then let them do volunteer work. It's what I promote here also, that we engage the refugees in our centers in all kinds of activities within the centers and potentially also outside. Now, I hear immediately people saying, yeah, but then you start to abuse these people. That's another extreme, of course. You should not use them as cheap labor. But let them do something. Let them actively learn the language. Engage people in creating their own environment. Give them a bit more freedom to organize their own place. If you do that, then you see that usually less distress. You see also that people have more engagement with their environment. So that's one of the, the biggest things with regard to social measures. Yeah, that is definitely true, Dr. Kaz. And I was more impatient and wanted to ask about the possible solutions in spaces where the mental health service providers are already under tremendous stress, given that there are fewer experts on ground. So how do you think they can actually facilitate such a space for the refugees and asylum seekers? I think this is the most beautiful opportunity to start training your mental health care providers from their own, from the own affected community. Uh, that's what we do in our approach. So if you have a resource poor environment with regard to uh, specialists and professionals in mental health, you can train up lay counselors, supervise them clinically. Uh, the advantage is that they speak the language of the young people, the social, cultural, but also sometimes literally the, the language. They know the practices and behavior that are healing for that community and in that culture. They know much better who is vulnerable in the community. The community appreciates them very often uh, tremendously because it's a sign of hope also. We're willing to and going to invest in you as a community. That's why we train up your own people. And you train sustainability because these people stay in their communities. And it's an approach we have in areas of mass violence. But there are also very good examples in India itself. I know my colleague Vikram Patel in Goa has trained up mental health counselors who visit psychiatric patients, take care of the medication and monitor the mental health situations of people in, in the area. And then you need one psychiatrist and a network of these kind of uh, lay counselors who monitor, who are clearly instructed, well-trained and well-supervised well to make the psychiatric professional also or the clinical psychologist aware of those who are not doing well. Uh, I see a lot of effort is done in trying to identify those who are not doing well by people who are too highly trained. So if you have low resources, then train up local community workers, local counselors uh, to identify and to have the basic treatment available. 
most people are supported and then you can save your professionals and your clinicians for the most severe cases. So train up local people, uh, increase the capacity, and it's all possible. It's not an, a dream. We've done this over the last 20 years. So we have done set up a whole mental health network in Kashmir, India, of a local psychologist who currently working in our program. But we started in 98 already with training local counselors connecting them to the established mental health services, the psychiatric system, supported the psychiatric system and the psychiatric institution, but also training psychiatrists into community-based services, community health workers, mental health workers in basic treatment, but also referral. And more and more nowadays, you see a network of psychologists around this. It's tremendously important in low resource areas to build that community-based system. It's probably, if you have to choose, even more important than very highly specialized mental health services. Because if you already are able to do a lot of preventative, curative work in the community, then there is less pressure on resource low specialized services. So that's basically the best approach for low resource areas. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the best approach going forward. And I really commend the work that Doctors Without Borders and the few people and organizations that you've quoted just now are doing in India and abroad. Dr. Kaz, we have repeatedly seen that children or perhaps grandchildren of refugees and asylum seekers do undergo stigma in the society that they choose to reside in. How does that overlap with the intergenerational trauma and make the mental health challenges more difficult? I will give an example from my own country, and it's dating far more far back. Around the 17th century, there was a lot of religious controversy in Europe. The Dutch society was quite open for people from different religions because we are much more a trading community and a trading country. So we were open to whoever wanted to come here and to work. That has led to the golden age because we gave in those days people an opportunity. The attitude like we don't care where you're coming from, we do care what you're doing here. And if you contribute to society, if you're willing to open up your business and work for your bread, then whoever you are, basically, we don't care. I don't want to say it was a society without prejudice. I don't think such societies exist. But there was a general basic, I must say, very pragmatic attitude. Like if you're doing well and you contribute, you pay your taxes, you trade, you work, then, you know, it doesn't matter so much. That has led to the golden age, that attitude. So what I want to promote is that communities see the huge advantages of new people coming to their communities. Of course, it should be in balance and the numbers should also be balanced. However, there are a lot of new opportunities coming with these populations. Knowledge, experiences, goods, trades, and sometimes new products. So that can also be seen as an opportunity. To a certain degree, I think the discrimination comes because people see it as a threat. And that's why I gave 
the example of my own community in the 17th century that led indeed to a golden age is that if you are able to absorb this as a community and to look at the opportunities it gives, then you can benefit all from it. That has that golden age shown. So instead of talking about discrimination, I think it's much more useful to look into the opportunities. Now, I'm not blind for the situation that if there are very low resources, there's hardly any work in certain societies, and suddenly you have several thousands, hundreds of thousands coming into an area. Of course, there is a lot of resentment against new people. It is also something I've seen in many refugee situations. However, if that resentment is changed into opportunities, then it's also a whole new market. Those 100,000 means that they need to eat, they need to have transport, etc. So a whole new market emerges. So it also gives opportunities. Where we as international NGOs should be extremely careful with is that we do not contribute to sort of discrimination in the sense of that we only support refugee and displaced populations and not the local situations. And I think that's where NGOs need to be very attentive to, that if they have only their services very often also pushed by donors for the affected group of displaced and refugees, indeed a vulnerable group that needs support, but not pay attention to the the support of the local communities, then you're creating disparity and also discrimination and discontent. So it is a combination of attitudes, looking at the opportunities it brings. As a government, as NGOs, distribute in case of disbalances and have services for the receiving population, but also for the disabled and the refugees. Yeah, we, in our interviews with certain refugee communities in the past have come across various challenges that marginalized within the marginalized face. For example, a disabled person within the community face a lot many more challenges than an able-bodied refugee um, person. So how do you think that such a diversity of needs be tackled by mental health workers? I think you should have attention for this. It's a quite quite obvious remark I make. I want to talk uh, to make it a bit broader. I think more and more attention, thank God, is to the issues of women and children, the sexual gender-based violence also in, in these kind of refugee situations. Because in refugee and displaced situations, what you see is that the differences between people are becoming bigger. Because there is a need to get your resources where there are where there are minimal resources, and then there is a struggle for life going on. And those who are in a disadvantaged situation, indeed disabled, mentally ill, women, children, these populations are at risk, and mental health professionals uh, should pay attention to these groups and try to reconnect them to their host, to their environments, and to the communities they live in. And very often, it's more healing to have efforts to reintegrate these in the refugee communities, in the displaced communities, than to have have only counseling. So the reconnection of the vulnerable into their own society, and sometimes under some protection, can be a mental health intervention that is extremely beneficial. 
So with regard to that, as a mental health professional, you have to be extremely pragmatic. Uh, the community is very often a very good healing mechanism for disadvantaged people. And I include here also a group that has undergone a tremendous trauma. Also, their community interventions can be quite successful. And talking about various stakeholders who can play a role in facilitating resilience building, when we talk about the government, when we talk about the workers in the host country, or when we talk about the bureaucrats, there is a lot of hesitance to cater to the needs of the marginalized, especially the refugees. So do you think that there are quite many challenges that exist because people are not doing the job? Yes, I think so. And I, it's very easy to talk about India or other countries. I want to talk about my own country. Governments are not doing enough here. And that leads to uh, poor integration of refugee people, people who are usually having a lot of potential, but are living in the lower, lowest classes of society. And governments should see the, my government should see the opportunities and the availability of resources in especially this group and not see them as people coming from abroad that you need to do something because you signed a treaty somewhere. So I think that's where my government clearly is failing to give them the good opportunities to thrive. And it's what I see very often, a short-term vision, and to have them getting out of these asylum seekers and put them somewhere in society. And that's short-term vision, long-term. And then I'm thinking not about the first-generation refugees, because they are usually very thankful for being there. But the second and the third and the fourth generation start to hold their host communities accountable for the discrimination, for the poor opportunities they received. Yeah, so I think it's useful to look at more generations because displaced and refugees, a lot of people are staying in the community. So investing in a good integration locally has its merits for the longer term uh, future. And yeah, governments, politicians, are chosen for, let's say, the first four years and very often focus only on that on that time. It's easy to talk only about governments. I think there is also an attitude in the general public that is failing. If we are only going to see people who are coming as refugees as threats, like they do in my country, many, not by far all, but there is certainly a substantial group as a threat to their culture, as a threat to their being, then that attitude also needs to change. And it very often has to do with jealousy. Not that refugees are having such a good life, but you know, um, if you want to see that people are privileged above others, then you will always find something. But the attitude should be much more like, you have had disharmony where you're coming from, conflict, threat, terrible, terrible things be welcome in our society, is an attitude that has a huge impact on uh, refugees and displaced on the short term and also on the longer term. If you interview refugees who have been received here in a very good way, the multi-generational problems are very few. So it has short-term effect, but especially also a long-term effect. And I think the attitude of populations, communities, should go more in that direction. Yeah. Thank you for that guidance.
in case there are mental health professionals listening to this podcast episode what suggestions would you give to those professionals who are willing to work with refugees and asylum seekers i think that there are a lot of signs symptoms potentially present in these people if you only focus on that the best you will see is people moving away from the pain creating some happiness I think if you have a mental switch and you look at the gigantic opportunities within that person, after all, they have survived all these circumstances. They have been creative to find a way out. They have an, a certain matter of strength, endurance to continue to live. If you look from that perspective, then it enables you to see more happiness. also to be creative in your thinking about how you can help these people to make them even more happier um you see opportunities and that is what we as mental health professionals should do we should look at the opportunities and give people hope and not bombard them with diagnosis and hopelessness and problems i always say explore the opportunities explore the solutions explore the ways to a little bit from a little bit happiness into a little bit more happiness with that perspective you find much more and you are also therapeutically much much more affected because all these people displaced refugees want one thing and that's to move forward they don't want to get stuck in the pain of the past exploring why it is as it is analyzing their problems analyzing their pain that is not the way to go i very strongly believe with these populations and solution oriented approach is hugely beneficial and therapeutically maybe uh, with a bit of more modesty because refugees idps internally displaced very often know what's good for them and you just need to facilitate and sometimes be the extra brain to help them explore that and to execute it. So that's for me much more the the way to go for mental health professionals. And I do not deny psychiatry, I do not deny pathology. We should have good specialized services for it. But that's for a minority and not a majority. Just one more remark, but it's so much more fun to have that attitude in the work because you see people grow. You see very small interventions usually benefiting. It's as a mental health professional that perspective, that solution-oriented perspective, is so gratifying and so joyful that I, I mean, for the mental health of the mental health workers, I think that's beneficial. And you know, twenty-eight um, years I'm, I'm doing this work. I've been in many parts of the world. I've heard so many stories, and I'm a happy person. And it's because I have that attitude. So it's a recommendation for mental health workers who want to take care of their mental health. Take that perspective and look, for especially solution-oriented. Very valuable insight. Thank you so much, Dr. Kars, for taking time out and answering those questions for us. It was quite an insightful session. and all the best with the work that you are doing currently thank you very much and continue your good work thank you